Have you seen the set for your closing number? No, Scooter, I haven't. What's it like? Oh, it's sensational. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a fountain with real water. Wow. Yeah, and it's 15 feet high. Mm-hmm. And it's made of real glass. Glass? Yeah, it's the prettiest That's thing Hey, will ever... you get that moose out of here? Oh, look out! <laughs> Cancel the fountain. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host and lover of whiskey and cigarettes and wild, wild women. Nick Jackson. One for three ain't bad. How are you doing tonight, Chad? <laughs> so just the whiskey then? Oh, clearly, yes. Yes, yeah. Uh, I'm doing well. How about you? Doing all right. Ups and downs as always. Um, yeah. It is Friday as we record this. Is it better? Was this week better than last week? Were there any trips to the emergency room? No. Um, knocking on wood because this week still has a day left in it. Oh, that's true. You're right. I'm sorry. I, I think I'll be fine. It's a low bar, but at least you cleared it. I'll take what I can get. This is a feat of lunatic daring where podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started, uh, I would like to ask you to check us out on social media at lunatic daring on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter and lunaticdaring.com, where you can find our watch list, our bibliography, and all of our episodes. We're getting there, man. We're in the back handful of episodes of uh, Muppet Show season two, going through them two at a time. The numbers have caught up on me. I couldn't believe when I was writing down the numbers today, which episode numbers we were doing. I couldn't believe it. I've been following it on DVD, and I think I just put the fourth disc in. For the season, so for people who you know maybe maybe have already watched these or are watching along with us, there's a damn Skeksis in one of these episodes. I was gonna wait till we got to that, but yeah, no, I I, I assume we're gonna edit in the whole trial by stone sequence. There's a literal Skeksis. I don't care what Muppet Wiki says it is. It's a Skeksis, and we'll talk about it. But just so you know, if you're a Dark Crystal fan, I think this is where it starts. But uh, that's not till the second episode. For the first episode, we got to talk about one of the loveliest men to ever live, Peter Sellers. Yeah, we can we can start from that point. Okay, um, it's a very very talented man. Yeah, let's let's get things started. Let's get things started. It's the Muppet Show with our special guest star, Mr. Peter Sellers. So, Nick, I joked earlier about Peter Sellers being the most lovable man on Earth. And that's not true. He was the most lovable man in the galaxy, right? Um, now, I, w- I want to point out, I like Peter Sellers, but I, I know not all of this is going to be sunshine and roses. Peter Sellers is a very sad man. Uh, the we'll, we'll get into this in detail in a bit. There's a, a longstanding trope, and it's referenced in his episode, but a, a longstanding, I guess, fiction, metafictional trope of an actor who is very good at taking on other roles because they have very little concept of self. Yes. And that's often presented in something of a two-dimensional way. Sellers himself references it in his time on The Muppet Show, but the ramifications of it and a lot of the complications that come with it. It's kind of the Andy Kaufman effect. Possibly. No one was ever really sure who Andy Kaufman was. The person that he reminded me of more than anything, and it might just be because I read his biography recently, but it sort of made me think of Marvin Gaye because it's very easy to trace a line from even early childhood to that ultimate end. Granted, uh, Sellers' end wasn't quite as tragic as Gay's was. No. Fewer guns were involved. True. Peter Sellers, born 
September 8, 1925, in South Sea to William Sellers and Agnes Sellers, who were both variety entertainers. So sort of like our our guest last week, Julie Andrews, who we'll actually see a fair amount of overlap here. But he was also the child of performers. He was on stage at two weeks old. So he was never he never really existed outside of that space. Another thing that might have also contributed to that sort of central void was he was actually christened Richard Henry Sellers, but his parents called him Peter after an older brother of his that had been stillborn. That's um, that's healthy. Yeah, no way that could possibly go wrong. His mom would actually <laughs> wow. be a dominant figure wow. well just, into his later sorry, life. Sorry, that's just messed up. It's Yeah, <laughs> it's rough. The wrong kid died, God damn. Peter would stay closer to his mom and his, he would lose his dad before he lost his mom, but he would say his mom would be a very present and sometimes domineering presence throughout his life. He attended the North, forgive me if I mispronounce this, the North London St. Elasius College, uh, which is a Catholic school, despite the fact that his parents were both Jewish and Protestant. And this created an additional sort of outsider status for him. He was a top student at school, but it would usually take the flavor of his teacher admonishing some of the other students in class for not knowing the catechism by saying, look, the Jewish kid gets it. And his parents were also like his mom was very encouraging of him learning to go on stage. And his dad basically crapped on him and told him he was never going to amount to much. The outbreak of World War II caused his school to evacuate to Cambridgeshire, but his mom didn't want him to go. So his formal education stopped at age 14. He got his first job at a theater at 15 years old as a caretaker of the Victoria Palace Theater, and he basically worked a bunch of odd jobs backstage, which gave him the opportunity to study a lot of actors that were going on and some of the things they would do. And even when he was still in school, he was doing a lot of impressions and bits for things. He became close friends with a man named Derek Altman. His first stage act was Altman and Sellers. He became a member of the ENSA performing comedy uh, performing comedy routines, which is a similar function to what Julie Andrews mother and stepfather were doing. He joined the Royal Air Force in 1943. It's still contested whether or not he was conscripted or he did it of his own volition, but his mom tried and failed to have him deferred for a medical issue. Of course, he had poor eyesight, so he wasn't able to become a pilot like he wanted. He ended up doing a lot of ground stuff, which he didn't enjoy, so he auditioned for what was called the RAF Gang Show which was an entertainment troupe that toured the United Kingdom before transferring to India. After the war, he was demobilized and he resumed his theater career. He made his TV debut on March 18th, 1948 in a show called New to You. October of that year, he appeared in The Starlight Hour, and then he started getting appearances on shows like The Gang Show or Henry Hall's Guest Night or It's Fine to Be Young. These all sound very British. They are. I, I'm sure someone's in the listen like, I know what some of those shows are. Maybe they've seen revivals and I just don't pay attention to the BBC. He started dating a woman named Anne Howe in 1949. They were married in 1951. This would be his first of four wives. They had a son, Michael, born in 1954 and a daughter, Sarah, born in 1958. He did make his film debut by dubbing the voice of Alfonso Bedoya in The Black Rose. He was also part what was arguably one of his more famous roles before he became involved with things like The Pink Panther or Dr. Strangelove was something called The Goon Show. Uh, it, was yeah. a ra- it started as a radio comedy program. It would eventually make the leap to TV, but he was part of a trio with... Uh, a guy named Spike Milligan and a guy named Harry Saccombe. And I hope I pronounced Harry's name right. The direct predecessors to Monty Python. Oh, that makes sense. Without The Goon Show, you don't get Monty Python. Hmm. In 1951, The Goons would make their feature film debut in Penny Points to Paradise, which was generally very well received. Sellers would also appear in The Lady Killers opposite his one of his acting heroes, Al Guinness, in 1955. It ought to look 
like an accident. How about suicide? What do you mean? Well, get her to write a note, you know. I just couldn't stand it no more. Sign Mrs. Wilberforce, and then somebody goes down and hangs her. Hmm? Very funny. I believe I've heard that title before, but... It was remade a few years back by the Coen brothers starring Tom Hanks. Hmm. It's the only Coen brothers movie that I think is actually not good. Ouch. They have better movies and they have worse movies, you know, but pretty much all their movies, in my opinion, are good to great. The Lady Killers is their worst film. Around this time, uh, Sellers had 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 been having a little bit of time getting his career off the ground, despite what we're hearing. And he started seeking spiritual help. Um, not only did he seek out an astrologist, he also met a Native American spirit guide in the 50s and became convinced that the ghost of comedian Dan Leno haunted him. Unlike the ghost of Jay Leno that would later haunt Conan O'Brien. Sellers released his first album in 1958 entitled Best of Sellers. This would be part of what, (laughs) which is, it's pretty early in his career, which is great. This album would be part of what convinces Stanley Kubrick to cast him in Dr. Strangelove. We've referenced certain aspects of his tragedy and certain aspects of his childhood. A lot of that seems like stuff that's happened to him at this point, outside of maybe going on a spirit quest and doing peyote in the desert, I assume. I don't. But in 1960, he portrayed Indian doctor Ahmed El-Kabir in a movie called The Millionaires with Sophia Loren. I think at this point, Sellers might have started to feel himself a little bit. He's quoted as saying, I, norm- I don't normally act with romantic, glamorous women. Apparently, he woke his son up one night and asked if maybe he should split with his son's mom. He also professed his love to Sophia Lauren in front of his wife. Yeah. Sellers developed a close relationship with Lauren during filming. No one's really sure whether or not they actually had an affair. They were just really close friends. They would also release an album together called Peter and Sophia not long after. I've seen the, I, I imagine I've seen some of the Pink Panthers when I was a kid. The only work of Sellers outside of what I've seen on the, the Muppet Show that I am familiar with is Lolita, and that's just because I've read the book. In 1962, Kubrick would cast him as Claire Quilty. And the thing that surprised me about this is my understanding of Kubrick, and I understand that I have a limited understanding of Kubrick, which we, we've discussed before, but Kubrick encouraged Sellers to improvise, which my, my impression of Kubrick is that he's a very meticulous man. He was. Um, you know, his real super over the top um control freakedness it developed mm-hmm. when you're talking Lolita. He's not quite to the point where he's doing 75 takes. I also think um the thing about Lolita is it's not it's a it's a it's a, the movie's a comedy. I don't know if you'd consider the book a comedy. The book is the, humorous. The book is a very black comedy. I, I would say that the book's a comedy. It's a very, very pitch black comedy. The idea on Kubrick's part is probably just, well, this is why you get this guy. Tell me something. Um, I couldn't help uh, noticing when you checked in tonight. It's uh, part of my job. I notice uh, human individuals, and I notice your face. I said to myself when I saw you, I said, that's a guy with the most normal-looking face I ever saw in my life. That's very nice of you to say that. Not a bit, not a bit. It's great to see a normal face, because I'm a normal guy. It'd be great for two normal guys like us to get together and talk about world events, you know, in a normal sort of way. Well, there's nothing I would like better than that, but I, I don't have much time. 
Oh, it's a pity because uh, may I say one other thing to you? It's really on my mind. I've been thinking about it quite a lot. I noticed when he was checking in, you had a lovely, pretty little girl with you. It, I, I will say for the record, it's my least favorite Kubrick film. I like the book, but it's just, but it is my least favorite Kubrick film. I find it the least enjoyable to watch. In 1962, Sellers asks his son and daughter who they love more, him or their mom. Which is just <laughs> the thing is, yeah. looking at Sellers' childhood. I get it. That doesn't make it okay. This is a no. terrible thing to do. There is kind of a cycle of trauma that we're that you, we kind of watch when we look through Peter Settler's life. Um, the daughter, trying to be diplomatic, said she loved both equally, and the son said that he loved the mom more, probably because she didn't ask him that question. <laughs> At which point, he threw both of his children out and said he never wanted to see them again. His first marriage would break down by the end of that year. <laughs> I would hope so. That same year, his father died, and he left England, where he was then approached by Blake Edwards um, to play Inspector Clouseau in The Peak Panther. As I was saying... Um, you were saying you supposed we were all uh, wondering why you called us. Look, there is no need for you to speak unless I ask you a question. What is your name? I'm Shork, the gardener. What is it you do? I'm the gardener. And why didn't you say that to me in the first place? I did. Look, don't try to be funny with me, monsieur. This is a very serious matter, and everyone in this room is under the suspicions. Room? What? What was that? You said room. Yes, I know that. And there is a very good chance that someone in this room knows more about the murder than he is telling. Murder? What was that you said? I said murder. What murder? Well, I don't know if you said murder. I said murder? You said murder. No, I said murder because you said murder. I said murder. You said there was someone in this room who knew more about the murder than he's telling. Now listen. What was your name? Shock. The cook. Gardener. Ah, now we are getting somewhere. Fun tidbit. One of our other Muppet Show guests, Peter Ustinov, had vacated the role shortly before Sellers took over. The Pink Panther would be released in 1964. Around that same time, Sellers would also be working on Dr. Strangelove, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award as well as a British Academy Award, which I assume is effectively the same thing, but one gets more press coverage in the States. They're called the BAFTAs. Yeah, they're the British version of the Oscars. Yeah. Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little funny. And uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Well, let me finish, Dimitri. Let me finish, Dimitri. Well, listen, how do you think I feel about it? Can you imagine how I feel about it, Dimitri? Why do you think I'm calling you? Just to say hello? Of course I like to speak to you. Of course I like to say hello. So around this time, we start to see a pattern of sellers leveraging to get people fired from productions, specifically directors. He started filming a, a movie called A Shot in the Dark, which would eventually be reworked to become a second Pink Panther film, although it wasn't initially. It was originally directed by a man named Anatole Litvuk, okay. um, but 
Sellers would get him fired and replaced by Blake Edwards, at which point it would just become a second Pink Panther film. But his relationship with Edwards would start deteriorating around this time to the extent that they would only really communicate through notes passed between each other. In 1964, around the time this movie wraps, he would meet his second wife, Britt Eklund. She was a Swedish actress. They were married within 10 days of meeting each other. It was a different time. (laughs) I mean, I, I get it on some level. But not really. She was, to be fair, she's very beautiful. No, no. I, I understand his decision-making process. <laughs> yeah. She was in the original Wicker Man. Not the Nick Cage Wicker Man. Oh, no, not the beast! Not the beast! So shortly after getting married, he started showing a lot of insecurity and paranoia, especially if she was cast opposite a particularly handsome movie star or something like that. So if there wasn't a movie based on Peter Sellers, I would want to clamor to write the screenplay. And I don't think I'm the best person to write the screenplays. I say that I'm not vaguely British enough, but his life is a black comedy. And we can like there's a there's an overlap between comedy and tragedy that you only fully recognize if you've been close to it. And you just have to laugh on the night of April 5th, 1964. He inhaled amyl nitrites as a stimulant in search for, quote, the ultimate orgasm. He would then go on to suffer eight heart attacks over a span of three hours and would not work again until that October. He would have one daughter with Britt named Victoria. She was born in 1965. The family would move to Rome in 1965 to film a movie called After the Fox. Sellers, with a lot of ego for a man who has professed to have no sense of self, also tries to have the director fired from this film, gets into open arguments with his wife, up to and including throwing a chair at her in front of, I'm guessing, a live studio audience. He would be featured in What's New Pussycat with Woody Allen, which, I, as I understand it, is Woody Allen's first film. I've been coming here ten months, and we haven't discussed my problem once yet. Well, perhaps if you'd be kind enough to tell us what your problem is, then we could all have a good discussing it or something. I can't. It's dirty. Um, Weren't we discussing last week uh, Mr. Darrell's relationship with his father? Uh, No, actually, we were discussing the dream about the train entering the the tunnel. Oh, yeah, yeah, the train and the tunnel. That was a good one, yeah. He would go on to work with Alan again in 1967 on Casino Royale, where he would get into pissing contests with Orson Welles, and he left before he was supposed to. Wait, so you're saying with uh, Orson Welles? He butted right. heads with Orson Welles. Right. I'm, 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 I'm stunned. Now, shortly after he leaves Casino Royale, he is appointed commander of the most excellent order of the British Empire, having nothing to do with Bill S. Preston Esquire or Ted Theodore Logan. Be excellent to each other. <laughs> Party on, dudes! Of course, the day before he's supposed to be recognized for that, he gets into an argument with Britt Eklund, and she scratches his face, so he had to hire a makeup artist to cover the scratches. They would go on to both collaborate on a film called The Bobo. Three weeks in, he told the director to fire his wife, and that he wouldn't come back to set if, quote, that bitch was still there. During the filming of The the Bobo, his mother would have a heart attack, and the director asked him if he wanted time off to go visit her in the hospital. Sellers elected to remain on set, and she died three days later. He didn't have the chance to see her before she died. Just a big teddy bear. Yeah, he's... It's weird to, to see someone who's so prone to throwing tantrums for someone who self-describes themselves as not having a central real self. Um, he would divorce Eklund in 1968 and marry again to a m- woman named Miranda Query in 1970. He was a little uncertain about it, 
but he went with it anyway. In May of 1973, he saw Liza Minnelli perform on stage. He proposed to her three days later, despite the fact that he was still married and she was engaged to another man. The relationship between Sellers and Liza Minnelli would last a month. Checks out. That checks out for both of them, to be fair. The early 70s was a pretty rough time for Sellers. He'd sort of hit a null point in his career. Also, it probably got around Hollywood that he was a difficult person to work with. You can get away with it for quite some time and sometimes your whole career. But eventually you're the problem is eventually you get to a point where you're not bringing in enough. You're not bringing in enough money for people to, to put up with you. That tracks. In 1974 and 1976, he would collaborate with Blake again for the return of the Pink Panther and the Pink Panther Strikes Again. His relationship with the director would continue to deteriorate. He kept throwing tantrums. I've never had a job where I can be like, I can just throw a tantrum here, but I've moved, like I've worked a lot of customer service jobs, so I get it. He married actress Lynn Frederick in February of 1977. He would have his second major heart attack that year en route from Paris, or on a plane from Paris to London, after which he was fitted with a pacemaker. He filmed a movie called Being There in 1979, which seemed like it might revive his career. It was something that was very well regarded as a dramatic role, and it's I've, apparently it's one of his better performances in film. It is. It's an excellent film, directed by the great Hal Ashby. I'm going to be honest with you, I, I don't know who that is. I know. His last film was the fiendish plot of Fu Manchu, based on the old pulp character. I want to be generous, but I assume that that was done in yellow face. I'm sure it was not at all racist. And are you who I think you are? I am Emperor of the Saipan, Grand Master of the Seven Sons, graduate of the University of Indiana Medical School, PhD, DDS, and Doctor of Veterinary Medicine. I am Dr. Fu Manchu. It was very, very poorly received, and on July 21st, he checked into the Dorchester Hotel in London. He was going to see the ashes of his parents, and there were plans to attend a reunion dinner with his partners from The Goon Show. Um, that was scheduled for the next day. But after shortly after lunch, he collapsed from a heart attack. He was taken to the Middlesex Hospital in London, and he died just after midnight on July 24th, 1980. He was 54. Following his death, well, first, at the time of his death, it did sort of cast a pall over a lot of his fans and a lot of the people that had worked with him, because despite how difficult the man might have been, I, I'm sure as I've related some of this biography, he was an incredibly talented man. Fortunately, unfortunately for his last wife, she was the primary beneficiary of his estate. He left very little to his children, and that caused her to be accused of being a gold digger and so many other terrible things, which sort of got her blacklisted from Hollywood. She couldn't get roles. She couldn't get jobs. And he was, we've discussed the Goon Squad being a major influence on things like Monty Python. I don't think the, the style of comedy has died off. Maybe it's evolved into something else, but there's a very physiological kind of comedy that Sellers performs. Like he, the way that he embodies the characters is very, very distinct. And you don't, or I definitely don't see it as much in American cinema, but he's not necessarily like a comedian comedian. He's a comedic actor. He creates comedy by creating characters, maybe the best kind of modern equivalent. And I'm, I'm putting modern in quotes because I'm an old man is like Mike Myers. Mm hmm. He was, he was a definite influence on Myers. And also his penchant for playing more than one role. In Dr. Strangelove, he plays three roles. Mm -hmm. Maybe the greatest comedy ever made. But he, he plays three roles in that. And so, yeah, someone like a Mike Myers or somebody. But yeah, he's someone who works. It's kind of weird. Kind of, I don't want to say from the inside out, because I'm sure there's still plenty of artifice involved. But yes, it's more of a, 
a character actor, a comedic character actor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a very talented guy. And yeah, a difficult one. Um, I've seen the film with Jeffrey Rush and Charlize Theron about his life. I don't know how accurate it is. It was an HBO movie. There's this certain breed of comedian. They're just not happy people. It's it's kind of a cliche to say that, but there are plenty of comedian who, who are nice, normal, happy people. Comedians, you know, but like he was working out some demons. <laughs> That I could see that I like with with someone like Pryor Carlin, I could absolutely see that. But with him, I think like his demons are definitely there, but I don't think he was working through them. Like, I don't think he was bearing his soul to the stage. I think he he takes on the personas, but it's in order to la- like it's not him trying to get a greater understanding of himself. It's protecting some aspect of himself. He's hiding. Yeah, there's no moment in this episode where he's himself, right? We wouldn't know it if we saw it. Well, I mean, maybe if he throws a chair, but like... There's one little moment at the end where he'd like... I'm just saying he's not in a costume or anything, you know? Mm-hmm. And he comes out, and that would be normally the moment where he'd, he'd just say, Hey, good night, everybody. But he still does it with a funny voice. Mm-hmm. The Muppet Show, episode 219, featuring guest star Peter Sellers, produced in December of 1977, premiering in the UK on January 1st, 1978. It would premiere in the United States February 24th of the same year. Directed by Peter Harris, written by our favorite guys... This does have this episode does have a Disney Plus cultural content warning. We'll tell you. We'll we'll let you in on a secret. It's going to come up right away. Yeah, you you don't have to wait long for it. You won't miss it. We also have a new character, not a huge character, but this is the first appearance of Quango, the wild mountain gorilla. Quango is usually played by Jerry Nelson. He'll show up in a handful of other episodes and some other things. Again, watching this episode, you won't miss him. He's very prevalent. So we we get to our cold open uh, where Scooter. As Scooter tends to do, calls for our guest star and lets him know that it's 15 seconds to curtain. Uh, at which point we see Gonzo throwing knives at Peter Sellers in his Inspector Clouseau garb. Gonzo! <laughs> 15 seconds? I should live so long. My association with the Pink Panther is much stronger with the cartoon, but I assume that that is more or less a direct reference to the original movie or one of the movies in the 70s. I think three of them were out by that point. Yeah, I don't think the line is. I just think the image is. But uh, yeah, it's it's very weird. I wonder what it felt like in 78 when it came out. But like, we haven't had a whole lot of guests, and I think maybe none, who have actually come on and played their characters. You have ones that come on and play their own songs, mm-hmm. but someone coming on and playing their character. Valerie did not come on and do Rhoda. And, and, and this is his thing, right? And you said off played characters but he wasn't they weren't characters from movies he made up new ones he did impressions right this is right off the bat he's playing his most famous character this is the equivalent of opening the show and harrison ford is dressed as indiana jones the the thing that we have to remember though is his career just started another upswing because the early 70s were really rough and then in six in 74 and 76 he had the two Pink Panther sequels that got him a little bit more clout. No, I can see that. So it's it's just, I don't know, it's just interesting that all of a sudden we're, I don't know, he's playing a character. But you're right, if he's if it's kind of a career renaissance, one of the things people are going to want is you to play the hits a little bit, you know? Mm. But I just think it's interesting that instead of creating a new character for these moments, that he, he does create some new characters in this, don't get me wrong. Again, cultural content warning incoming. He, he does create some characters. It's just interesting to see him actually as Clouseau. Um, I don't think we're going to see that again until Mark Hamill arrives as Luke Skywalker. Excuse me, Master Luke, but what is this strange world we've come to? Beats me, 3PO. Seems we've landed on some sort of comedy variety show planet. From there, we go through our theme where uh, 
Statler coughs and Walter blows his nose. I think this is the first time we've seen this particular interaction with Gonzo with the beautiful day monster coming up behind him. Oh, yeah. yeah. And blowing a louder trumpet. <laughs> Gonzo calls him a thief for stealing his moment. And from there, we earn our content warning. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, how to navigate this? It is I, Boris, with his sobbing violin. We have got any requests? Yes, but you're gonna play anyway. Such unkindness is to break the heart, eh? Hey, gypsy's heart is yearning. A gypsy's blood is churning. I guess my first question is, I don't want to say are we allowed, because that's not the right way to put it. So is gypsy not a term that people will use anymore? Uh, I think it's a complicated, nuanced thing. I think the yeah. way that it's it's used as a catch-all thing is sort of similar to someone saying something about Native American culture and assuming that all Native Americans belong to a singular tribe. I think it's a complicated, nuanced thing, and I, I'm definitely not qualified to say what something is or isn't in this context. No, I, I you know, absolutely understand that. I just, he comes out and he's, he's going to sing a song called A Gypsy's Violin, and he's going to be dressed, he's not, he's not dressed as a Romani, he's dressed as a gypsy, right? Mm-hmm. A cliched gypsy. And it's an entire number about being a gypsy. It's, it's, I guess all we can do is acknowledge that we know that that's not the appropriate terminology now, or that it may, may or may not be, you know, we don't know. It's complicated because like, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily like a, I guess my question is, is it a slur? I don't know, <laughs> you know? Like, I think we- this, so he's a character actor and what he's presenting here is a caricature. Yes. And I don't think it's necessarily a hateful thing. No, I just meant as far as a, the, the word itself, you know? Uh Follow-up question, can Stevie Nicks still get away with it? Yes. Yeah, it's very, so it's a very, yeah, it's so hard to describe it without being like somewhat offensive because it is, it's not intentionally offensive. Like you said, it's not done with hatred. It's done with this joyous celebration of being a gypsy, but the vision of being a gypsy to them is a very cliched, stereotyped, you said catch-all vision of what a gypsy is. You know, the cartoon version. Listen, any more talk like that and I will play. So this song was written by a guy named Abe Burroughs. From his 1950 album A Burroughs Sings. He was actually wasn't really as much of a singer. He was a humorist. Um, he was actually a Tony winner and a Pulitzer Prize winner. We're gonna hear a lot of songs from A Burroughs tonight. Multiple in this episode and another one in the next episode. So a lot of these songs, I guess maybe Jim stumbled upon <laughs> an old record he had or something while they were trying to write sketches. And he's like, hey, just I don't know, make some stuff out of this one. I will say this, watching this with my kids was tough. Because I didn't know whether I was to say something. How did they respond to it? They were pretty bored. <laughs> I don't think they found the song particularly compelling because I think part of what they're relying on to be compelling is look at this crazy depiction of a gypsy camp. That doesn't register with you at all. Then you're relying just on the song and the song's not super impressive, I don't think. They were pretty bored. But you, j- you do have that question, though, where you're like... Am I supposed to say something? Like, I don't think they have, they, I don't think they go to school with any Romanian people, you know? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't, I don't think they're going to accidentally slip up and use the word in the wrong situation. 
And even in the context that they do, the the allowance for a three-year-old or a five-year-old to say that versus when you come from a certain culture, there's a hierarchy, right? There's a like there's a hierarchy of racial slurs, and there's a, where I know that no, 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 no. But if it's not um, an ethnic group that I'm going to encounter often or interact often or even talk about often, I don't necessarily. I'm not as necessarily attuned to those things well it sort of seemed like uh they they wanted to see peter sellers do what peter sellers does they wanted to see him inhabit a character and so in doing so they provide him with a caricature that has a lot of associations that might be shorthands for the audience he's not setting you up for punchlines and stuff right it's the the humor is all character based and in this sense it's look what a look i'm a crazy gypsy (laughs) i mean you know and isn't that weird While I will fight for some of them, if I think there is artistic merit in it, if I think the, yes, maybe they're a little tone deaf for the times, but they're really well done or they're really good or they're really important. I'll fight for those a little bit, you know, I'll fight for their relevance. Mm -hmm. Uh, This one's irrelevant to me. Yeah, that's that's a fair statement. From there, we we actually, so I want to talk about Kermit this episode. Poor Kermit. Poor Kermit. He's having a rough day. The people that were sitting in the audience in the the gypsy violin bit come off and Kermit makes a call for quiet, uh, at which point Gonzo (laughs) comes crashing. (laughs) Next time I think I'm going to schedule a nice, quiet Gregorian chant. Apropos of nothing. Apropos of completely nothing, but I'm also no. no. I'm looking at it and thinking, who rides a mi- motorcycle backstage? Meatloaf, just Meatloaf. No one else. Possibly Tom Cruise. Possibly Tom Cruise. Uh, yeah, no. I, I uh, as soon as you, as soon as I heard the motorcycle, you know what's happening. But the thing is, it's not leading into a sketch. It's not leading into one. He's not going out for a number. He's just driving by. Mm-hmm. And then out of nowhere, Doctor Bunsen Honeydew just sort of teleports in this whole episode is just kermit looking for a moment's peace yeah like when you think about it spoilers he does not find it actually he does he does he kind of does he he self-soothes but like he creates his own peace in terms of superpowers one of the worst superpowers you could end up with is probably telepathy but shortly behind that teleporting isn't necessarily bad for you unless you teleport someplace that your body shouldn't have teleported into like the center of a, a mass of granite or something. But it's going to be really obnoxious for anyone that you just plan to drop in on because I have a lot of friends who just don't knock when they go into places or things like that. If you go in and grab someone from out of the store or something like that, maybe they just accidentally shoplifted. It's it's a really obnoxious superpower to have. See, that's my number one. That's my number one superpower that I want. Teleporting? Just for traveling. I could see it. It's got its conveniences. It's just... Invisibility would be a good number two. Eh, I'd probably want to control the weather. That's pretty good. Go full full uh, storm. But also like environmental impacts, hopefully. Well, yeah, okay, for the greater good, sure. But also, you get to be the head of the Reavers, you get the cool mohawk and stuff, so, yeah. Uh, no, I don't need to look like a broke Mr. T. Funny <laughs> related note, though, my brother has legitimately done that. He looked like a skinny, broke, lighter-skinned Mr. T, and my dad couldn't make eye contact with him until he went bald. Remember when Aaron cut his hair, he looked a little like Mr. T when he had his, his, <laughs> his mohawk. Yeah, that's not, that's not fair. Uh, I like Punk Rock Storm. Punk Rock Storm's a good look. I didn't say there was anything wrong with Storm. I just said I wasn't getting the, the frohawk. So uh, Bunsen appears out of nowhere. You know, they do a nice little match cut. It's not quite a bamf for Nightcrawler fans. It's just a little kind of bloop. You know, it's, it's a full-on Goku. Just Oh, is that what it is? Okay. It's a later ability of his. It's, Kermit actually makes a comment about shouting at himself at some point. I, I can't remember exactly how he phrased it. 
If this keeps up, I'm going to wind up talking to myself. And then Bunsen blips in and says something. And he's like, what are you talking about? Bunsen blips away, teleports away, and Kermit keep, keeps talking to him. And then Scooter comes in and says, uh... I've been shouted at, run down by a motorcycle, and now I think I'm hey, going Kermit, to... Hey, hmm? Kermit, you're talking to yourself. All Kermit wants is a little bit of quiet. But Peter Sellers... One thing Peter Sellers is, I mean, he doesn't affect the backstage story at all, but... No, he's a non-entity. But there is an energy that he brings. Um, Peter Sellers is who, what I would call a dangerous comedian. Okay. Um, their comedy doesn't come without a price. Sellers just feels dangerous. Um, you, you don't know what he's going to do, even if it's entirely scripted. There is no Miss Piggy in this episode. There isn't, is there? No. This is just Kermit trying to keep it together. That's all it is. And wanting a moment's peace. A separate piece, as John Knowles would call it. So we uh, we go to Rolf at the piano with the ever-shrinking candles, which don't freak me out as much they, as they used to, although they still do a little bit. But he sings a song called Win, uh, which is another Abe Burroughs song, uh, which I guess you could say ends with a punchline. When the whippoorwill is singing in the forest. That's a whippoorwill right there. When the little brook is murmuring a tune. When the mockingbird is chirping in the wildwood. And a lonely wolf is howling at the moon. When the leaves of the old oak tree start a rustling. And a waterfall makes sounds like woman's tears. When the whole world is filled with Mother Nature's noises, that's the time to stuff cotton in your ears. It's weird. So he Kermit wants him to do this because Kermit's like, oh, Rolf, go play a quiet song. And it ends with just a little tiny little punchline at the end, but Kermit gets mad about it. It doesn't seem to work. Like it, It's not like he got super loud. It's not like he brought out the mayhem. Yeah, I think Kermit's just a little tightly wound at the moment. I think he's being a little, yeah, I think he's a little sensitive. Just a bit. If someone kept teleporting in and out of my room, I'd probably be irritable. Sure, sure. <laughs> Backstage, though. <laughs> Poor Beaker. <laughs> if anyone deserves Kermit's sympathy, it's Beaker. Because you know Beaker didn't ask to be part of this experiment. No, no, but when he shows up, when Beaker blips in holding the tray, Kermit doesn't, all Kermit does is scream because he's scared to see him, right? And then he hurls that tray. <laughs> It's amazing. Like, it might be the funniest moment in the episode. It's just when he tosses the the tray over his head when he screams. And then just disappears again. Yeah, and then just disappears again. So, yeah. So, he, I think Kermit even, Kermit even says, like, what is going on with the lab? Speaker, what is it with you guys from the lab? Where's Bunsen and now you? What are you guys trying to do to us? Hey, Kermit, Kermit. What is it? Now you're shouting at yourself. <laughs> Apparently they have a lab somewhere that they keep working. They're not always on stage. I just want to find out that they discovered the lab between seasons and Bunsen had been in there forever. It's like, oh yeah, I, this is where my tenure is. You figure they have like a lab down in the basement, kind of like a soundstage, like a studio you would have, like a studio you'd have, and they just pump the feed live from the, from the lab. Probably, yeah. But they're not a television show. They're a vaudeville theater. They just put up a screen. I'm, I'm starting to poke some holes in this puppet show. Yes, slowly but surely. From there, Kermit goes to visit Peter Sellers, who's dressed <laughs> in a Viking helmet, a corset, a wig, and a boxing glove. Yeah. If I were British, this would probably mean more to me, but he was doing a grand impersonation of Queen Victoria, 
but he forgot what she looked like. Yeah, I don't, you don't have to be British. The, the joke is just he's wearing a Viking helmet, a corset and a wig and boxing gloves. And the whole joke is he says, yeah, I'm preparing to do my impression of Queen Victoria. What's wrong? I forgot what she looked like because obviously he's not dressed like a queen. No, not at all. I actually thought it was a funny joke. I mean, the wig does make me think of Brian May a little bit. Yeah, it does look very Brian Mayish. You're right. This scene has the... Um, probably the most famous line of the episode maybe the one i mean it's it's one of peter seller's most quoted lines right well we referenced it earlier in the episode as well when we we're going through his biography uh kermit goes back to talk to him and he just sort of tries to assure peter that while he loves his characters he can just relax and be himself um but of course peter says mm-hmm. but that you see my dear kermit would be altogether impossible i could never be myself uh, never yourself no you see there is no me. I do not exist. I, I beg your pardon. Yes? There used to be a me. Mm-hmm. But I had it surgically removed. Which is a funny line, but actually pretty, um, sounds, sounds pretty accurate. Again, tragedy and comedy overlap pretty effectively. I, I I just find it interesting. I didn't know. I knew I hadn't seen this episode in forever. I knew that quote being accredited to Peter Sellers. You know, if you like said you go on IMDb or you go online, you like finally like Peter Sellers quotes, it's going to show up. I had no idea it was from the Muppet Show. Of course, in true Gonzo fashion, um, <laughs> Peter tells Kermit about a new act that he's been working on where mm-hmm. he wants to recite the soliloquy from Shakespeare's Richard III, while playing tuned chickens. How do you tune a chicken? I was trying to come up with a pun there, but I couldn't find one. And he he performs it, and Kermit's a good sport, but when he's through, he informs him that he can't actually do that on the show, because Gonzo tried it last week. And Gonzo pops in and just lets Peter know that it died. It died, Peter! It was terrible. I mean, they've got no taste around here. Oh, but you're absolutely right, my dear Gonzo. They have no taste at all. Terrible. Did not work. Yeah, he does. Uh, this is the winner of our discontent speech from Richard III. Mm-hmm. While every once in a while kind of squeezing chickens like they're these little kind of like bagpipes or something. Now is the winter of our discontent. <laughs> Made glorious summer <laughs> by the sun of York. <laughs> and all the clouds <laughs> that load upon our house. <laughs> In the deep bosom of the ocean, buried. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> but I, I thought that was a good punchline, though, of uh, 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 Gonzo did it last week. Because the whole time you are watching it, you're thinking, like, this is just a Gonzo bit. And so I like when he, he, uh, he uh, I was like, yeah, no, that was great. Did it, Gonzo did it last week. <laughs> it's got chickens. It's got Shakespeare. It's, it's stupid. <laughs> it, it died, Peter. It died. <laughs> And then doesn't Gonzo blip out? Yeah, he does. He blips out. And Kermit at this point is just trying to batten down sort of weather. He's like, okay, I guess I just work in a space where things randomly disappear and reappear. Yeah. I will get in touch with my inner Arthur Dent and just sort of let this happen. <laughs> yes. And he tries to tell Peter not to worry about it too much. At which point a bomb appears in the dressing room and Peter disappears. But Kermit isn't that lucky. <laughs> For our UK spot this week, or this episode, I should say, uh, Rolf accompanies Gonzo on a song called Memory Lane. This is also an Abe Burroughs song. I am strolling down memory lane without a single 
Now, this is a UK spot, right? This is a good old-fashioned American UK spot. <laughs> like, 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 like they used to make. Behind, but I am strolling down memory lane without a ding-dong thing on my mind. But, uh, yeah, stuff that I, I, I like uh, Gonzo's dance moves in it. Oh, yeah. I like his kind of walking back and forth. He kind of reminded me of the Soggy Bottom Boys in... Uh, Ain't no brother where out there without a ding dong thing on his mind. Some folks remember their mothers and others their girlfriends behind. But I am strolling down memory lane without a ding dong thing on my mind. Now we get definitely the most famous sketch from the so episode. So did he have a Hitler mustache in this? No, he has a Dr. Strangelove mustache. Now, Dr. Strangelove was a Nazi. Okay. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the movie. I assume I would get that if, if I had. He is 100% playing Dr. Strangelove in this. This this is definitely the like most played back, most clipped moment from this episode is him and Link doing the uh, massage. Mm-hmm. He is playing a character named Dr. Merk Wordigibly. And um, that means strange. It means strange love. So he is playing Doctor Strange Love from the movie Doctor Strange Love. He has three characters, and one of them is actually named Doctor Strange Love, who is an ex-German scientist who is now working for the Americans, helping them build bombs because uh, that's what we did. <laughs> so that's what we did. We punished a lot of Nazis, but the real smart ones we brought onto our team. Um, and Doctor Strange Love is one of those. It's a fictional one of those Nazis. So his mustache may intentionally be reminiscent of a certain Austrian failed painter. Well, I'm just here to try to loosen up your another little body, you know? Go <laughs> Doc. That should start here. And it's him giving Link a real good rubdown. Yeah, Link's, Link's going to be a pretzel by the end of this. Yeah. His legs are pretty deflated to begin with, but... I think it's a fun... I think this one's fun. Hmm. It's a good performance, I think. Um, again, maybe judging – my kids enjoyed it. Once he started, like, rolling him up and stuff, but, like, my kids were laughing. But I will say this may be a – you know, it's almost like Rich Little a little bit. Like, I think they're relying – in this number, they're partially relying on the fact that you understand that that's Dr. Strangelove. I will say that it, it's able to stand more on its own merit. Yeah. Uh, to me, the real humor in this comes from – one is the 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 line where he tells he calls him a naughty little he call he says something about uh, Link's naughty, naughty little, little body, body and he means naughty K N O T T Y but it says no, but it's like your naughty little body and then uh, so I like that but to me it's all about uh, Jim as Link's reactions to it all mm-hmm. I think are very funny the performance is very funny and, and you know he's he's kind of playing that uh, you know you're getting that massage that's just just like a little too hard for you but you don't want to say anything. Mm-hmm. Tell me, Link, if you can feel that the blood is for easier is there. Oh, oh is there. <laughs> and again, he's on this one here. Now he's dead. Oh, Dr. Nevertheless, is pleased, you know. It's a very unusual feeling. 
good, good. And he like rolls up his legs and make him a pretzel. He's like, oh no, yeah, no, yeah, it feels good, Doc. It feels good. <laughs> like you don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to say that you're in excruciating pain because this is all just part of the the, the healing process or whatever. But mm-hmm. it's, it's it's a funny number and definitely the most famous from this episode for sure. I'm just going to easily bring this leg around to the front. <laughs> <laughs> You did not feel that, Link. Oh, oh no, no, it's oh, not good. The muscles are in such good condition. Oh, yes, I can tell a good muscle when I feel one, Link. I mean, I don't think Link minded it. As a matter of fact, he goes backstage afterward and lets Kermit know that it's actually the best massage he's ever had. That Peter O'Toole is good. <laughs> I could also understand that Link would believe that's Peter O'Toole. Mm. Kermit's even like Peter O'Toole. Although, again, we are a rare Link-Kermit interaction. Mm-hmm. So then we get a pretty dark joke. Again, this episode, not for the kiddies. Uh, not for the kiddies. I mean, this would have flown over kids' heads in all likelihood. My 12-year-old nephew, whose dad is a duck hunter, really enjoyed it. <laughs> well, that'll do that, yeah. Yeah, he got it. <laughs> My kids didn't get it, but he got it. Fozzie comes in to inform Kermit that the next act has been canceled. Oh, Kermit! Kermit! Oh, no. The next act just canceled. <laughs> what? But that was a terrific act. That yeah. was Prunella and her prancing poultry. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kermit, see, about about that poultry. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, duck hunting season began. <laughs> I, I don't want to hear about it. I will go and explain to the audience. And they just give this deadpan, like, yeah. <laughs> like, they just kind of, it, it is weird. They just kind of, they kind of just take a moment of silence for the, for all of the ducks that may, it must have been killed. It's really crazy. <laughs> it's just a very like they're like like it happens every year you know (laughs) you know or or the fact is they have so many they use so many since everyone's an animal on here they may be very aware of hunting season you know i mean there have been a number of jokes about kermit's legs next episode we might be able to hunt some moose if they don't do it the copyright office will so this leaves kermit down in the dumps but one of the things and i know i've mentioned it on the show before when the muppets take those ego ego hits with the notable exception of miss piggy they're typically really good about sort of shoring themselves up and maintaining perspective, usually in the form of a song. It's not easy being green Having to spend each day the color of the leaves As we saw with Gonzo on the Madeline Kahn episode. And also the last time Kermit sang this particular song, this song being being green. And I think this is something that Kermit does to self-soothe when everything else starts getting to him, which there are a long list of ways people cope with things that are both healthy and unhealthy. But as those things go, this is a, a pretty positive and healthy way to handle it. This will also be the second and last time that the song is sung on The Muppet Show. Um, for the background on the song, go back and listen to our episode 113, the Peter Ustinov episode. Yeah, that was the one where, uh, you know, everybody, he, he got jealous of Peter Ustinov because mm-hmm. everyone was talking about how great he was. And then he sang the song. I find this more emotionally kind of effective, less so because we've already seen it, but more so because of the context. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what they did on that, the Peter Ustinov episode. It satisfies the same beat. Were they not satisfied with it the first time that they wanted to try it again? Because it's the same setup. It's exact. It's it's Kermit's frazzled. And he comes out to the audience and he's vulnerable for a second. And he's like, oh boy, uh, you may have noticed that we're not terribly well organized around here. And uh, tonight I'm just barely making it. I don't know. Sometimes it's very difficult. 
you know, guys, things are just kind of messed up, you know, and I'm really sorry and I'm having a rough night. And he, he gets all humble and he gets vulnerable with the audience and then he sings Being Green, which is his vulnerable song. So to me, since they only did it the two times, I almost feel like they, they were just like maybe not satisfied with the first time. Maybe Jim didn't love the performance or there's something about it that they didn't like. They just thought they could improve upon it. It would be one thing if he sang a different song, right? Mm-hmm. It's interchangeable with the Houston off one, basically. But green's the color of spring. And green can be cool and friendly like. And green can be big like a mountain or important like a river or tall like a tree. From there, uh, we we always knew we were going to end up at Muppet Labs because they sort of dominated the episode. To be fair, that is where the future is being made today. Dr. Honeydew is presenting us with his teleporter, which can transport people from one location to another, which Kermit is suspected up to this point, but actually seeing it. Aha! Uh-huh. So that's what's been happening around here. You have been zapping people in and out of my theater. Please, Mr. Kermit, I'm in the very midst of an important demonstration. Oh, yeah? Well, listen, I'm in the midst of a nervous breakdown. So, ever the pragmatist, Dr. Honeydew teleports Kermit away. You cannot go zapping people around... As I was saying, our new teleporter works perfectly. Kermit gets so mad. Kermit gets so mad as soon as he, Honeydew's like, we've created a teleporter. And Kermit comes and is like, I knew it. And I'm like, first of all, you should have known it right away. Oh, yeah. But I knew it. I'm shutting this whole thing down. He comes in, he comes in like the EPA guy in Ghostbusters. I'm shutting this whole thing down. I'm not interested in your opinion. Just shut it off. My friend, don't be a jerk. Step aside. If he does that again, you can shoot him. You do your job, pencil neck. Don't tell me how to do mine. Thank you, officer. Shut it off. And Honeydew, instead of listening, instead of being a rational human being, just shoves him into the teleporter. To be fair, that's kind of the Muppet way. At the same time, Dr. Honeydew is trying to retrieve Beaker, who has been teleported somewhere to the jungle in one of the African countries. And he inadvertently brings back our friend Congo, uh, the wild mountain gorilla. And this will be his debut on The Muppet Show. Bunsen sends both of them back and tries to bring back just Beaker, but instead brings back Congo and Kermit. Yes. Poor, poor Kermit. Poor Beaker and Kermit at the sure. hands of this madman. And a wild mountain gorilla. Poor gorilla. Poor Quango. Now, at least I'll say at least in this, he was teleporting himself. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he's tested all sorts of stuff on himself. Because it already works. That's the thing. It already works. So he's okay doing it, but uh, we get to the, we find the culprit and the culprit is, and I'd like to see his degree, by the way, <laughs> I would like to see, what is his doctorate in? Science. Science. Kermit, of course, still recovering, uh, means that for the next bit, Fozzie comes on stage to introduce Peter Sellers for his final number. He is then interrupted by Peter Sellers, who is still trying to perform his Shakespearean soliloquy. Ladies and gentlemen. Now is the winter of our discomfort. <laughs> Peter, you're supposed to be in your costume for the next number. Oh, I beg your pardon. Fozzie informs Richard that the show's running a little bit long, so could he try to be a little short? And Richard drops to his knees because he's over-accommodating. I'm not too proud to say I laughed at that. It was, the timing was right. I, I laughed at that. And we go back. So the final musical number, I realize it's not fair to compare the character that he's playing to Isaac Brock, because Isaac Brock probably saw this as a child and modeled some aspect of his persona on this. But the performance of Cigarettes and Whiskey, it seems like a Modest Mouse video a little bit. (laughs) 
Okay. Um, all Peter right. plays a bass drum beating temper. He plays a bass drum beating Temperance Preacher back. Sorry, by, that was not that was not the band that I expected to get name dropped. It was Modest Mouse. Okay, go ahead. Well, something the front man of Modest Mouse has cultivated a very specific chaotic per- persona. I've seen him play. I just didn't. <laughs> okay, but we we get to see a familiar old face in this particular bit as well. George the janitor is back and singing. He's made it out of the audience. We also see Doctor Julia Strange Pork appropriately singing with a different voice yes it's still jerry nelson but he gives him like a southern voice to go along with the song how i was happy and i had a good life i had enough money to last me for life i met with the gal and we wait on a she taught me to smoke and to drink whiskey, cigarettes and whiskey and wild, wild women. They'll drive you crazy. They'll drive you insane. Yeah, I found out this. So this song was originally, it was written by a guy named Tim Spencer, but he was the member of a group called the Sons of the Pioneers. Interesting. Which was a, a, a mid-century Western singing group. It was originally a trio, and the most famous person to come out of that original trio was Roy Rogers, who would go on to become his own superstar. But so yeah, so they were like a cowboy singing group, which was a thing. That's my definition, believe me, dear brother. A fire on one end and a fool on the other. My brother-in-law also sings this song a lot for fun. Now, it is a temperance song. It is mostly sung by people who celebrate the opposite of temperance. <laughs> uh, I, I actually think this is the most uh, fun the episode gets. Yeah. They're, they're definitely having a really good time on this particular bit. Sing temptation! Somebody get that bum out of here! Right on the cross at the head of my grave. I think, I think a very fun. Uh, number with a really good performance and a George sighting. And a George sighting, yeah. Cigarettes and whiskey and wild, wild women. They'll drive you crazy. They'll drive you insane. They'll drive you crazy. They'll drive you insane. But before we go, let us have a warm thank you for our very special guest, our ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Peter Sellers. Peter's teleported in behind Kermit. He disappears and reappears wearing a German helmet, which, again, maybe it would make more sense to me if I'd seen Dr. Strangelove, but the iconography is an interesting choice. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is a Strangelove reference. It is because he comes back and he does the Strangelove voice when he's wearing the helmet and mm-hmm. Strangelove was German. It sounds dumb. There was a time where, like, just wearing a Nazi helmet was kind of funny. And I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, Mel Brooks has done Hitler impressions, so I... Yeah. I can see the space where that, that sort of... And there still can be, if anyone saw Jojo Rabbit. Mm-hmm. Jojo Rabbit's a movie where Hitler is one of the main characters. And uh, it, and it's a full-out comedy, and it's an amazing film. But yeah, but it, it's it's kind of a... Yeah, I don't know how to, how to explain it. <laughs> Our playful... For some reason, there was a time there... Where we had like, and maybe maybe not for some reason, where we had kind of a playful hatred of the Nazis almost. There's something in the Western world where we there's a, a sort of prestige associated with 
sharing in the role that defeated that mostly unanimously understood evil. And so if it is assumed not to be a threat anymore, I could see it being turned into farce. The teleporting continues. Several Muppets teleport in. <laughs> yeah. We get through the credits and at the end, both Statler and Waldorf just sort of disappear. Never fear fans. Statler and Waldorf will be back for the next episode. Hard to judge this episode. I don't think there's any reason to, there's no need to judge it. You know, um, uh, I don't mean it that way, but uh, I think some of it's funny and some of it's not. So while I did feel very sorry for Kermit with the backstage story, it was a tidy one. We, we have a beginning, middle and end and poor, poor Kermit. special guest tonight is one of the truly great international singing stars, Miss Petula Clark. Episode 220 with special guest star Petula Clark, produced in December 1977, aired in the spring of 78. Um, before I get into Petula, we do have a new character this week. Nick, would you like to describe our new character? His name is Black Rooster. I was actually about to start talking about the moose, but yeah, Black Rooster is also... I, I was waiting. There's so many sound effects that I was waiting to hear when Black Rooster was on screen. Is that something we should touch on when we get to... Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it when we, when we get there. Petula Clark, our guest star. I I had no idea who this woman was. I have two and a half pages here, and I still I don't 100% know who she was, only because I just don't have as much of a frame of reference. Uh, singer and actress Petula Clark was born Sally Alwyn Clark on November 15th, 1932 in Surrey, England. Her nickname slash stage name, Petula, was given to her by her father, who claimed it was a combination of the names of two of his ex-girlfriends, who one he called Pet and one who went by Ulla, um, and both names sound just as made up as Petula, so who knows. It's an interesting scheme. It's also uh, an understanding mother. <laughs> yeah, that's what, like, if I had a daughter and I named her after an ex. Won't go well. Won't go it, well. It sets a weird feeling for the entire thing. Petula started singing at a very young age. During World War II, she lived just outside of London during the Blitz. Uh, when she was eight, she joined some other children in an underground theater to record messages for troops on the front. And then an air raid siren went off and uh, everyone freaked out. And in order to calm the group down, Petula sang a song to comfort the group. People were so impressed with it that they recorded it. <laughs> and uh, technically her first recorded vocal track, a song called Mighty Rose. Looking at him, man, with eyes. This led her to a series of some 500 appearances in radio programs designed to entertain the troops. So she kind of became this, you know, a darling of British troops. She sang in the choir, um, had a talent for mimicry, and after her father took her to see a play, decided that she wanted to be an actress. But not just any actress, she wanted to be Ingrid Bergman, which is a pretty tall order. But her first real gigs were as a singer, uh, performing with an orchestra in the entrance hall of Ben Tal's department store in Kingston, uh, which is kind of like, you know, like those people you see playing the piano in upscale places like Saks or Nordstrom or something. Uh, when her career started taking off, and she was, when I say that, she's like nine, okay, um, she toured with fellow child performer Julie Andrews and performed for big names like Winston Churchill and King George VI. People started referring to Clark as Britain's Shirley Temple. 
and she became somewhat a mascot to the British forces during the war. Troops were known to paste photos of her on their tanks for good luck. She was discovered by film director Maurice Elvey when she was 12, who cast her in the war drama Medal for the General, where she played a precocious wartime orphan. Several other films followed, uh, the only one I recognize being I Know Where I'm Going, which is directed by the legendary filmmaking duo Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. She did a movie in 1948 directed by Peter Ustinov and co-starred with Alec Guinness in 1952's The Card. She's still very young doing this. She's still a early teens at the most. She did more radio and then dove into some TV work, mostly appearances on variety and talk shows. Uh, in 1947, so she would have been 15 at the time, she met Joe Mr. Piano Henderson, who was a well-known Scottish pianist, uh, 12 years her senior. They worked together musically and were linked romantically over the decade, which feels kind of sketchy, or at the very least kind of a grooming situation, but that's all I could really find. By the time they were officially a couple, she was of age, uh, I don't know, it's, it feels kind of gross, but that's, it is what it is. Uh, Joe ended up getting her signed to the newly founded Polygon Records. She had a number of major hits in the UK, including The Little Shoemaker, Suddenly There's a Valley, and With All of My Heart. I love you with all my heart Only you do I adore I hope I said those in a way that make you think I actually know what songs those are. Uh, in 1957, she signed with Vogue Records, where she met her future longtime publicist, collaborator, and husband, Claude Wolf. She embarked on a concert tour of France and Belgium, then further into Europe, and in doing so, recorded songs in German, French, Italian, and Spanish. And she worked on both sides of the channel, putting out hits in the UK and their French counterparts in you know, France, and uh, did a lot of touring on the European mainland. While cranking out pop hits, Petula also wrote the soundtrack for the French crime drama Daggers Drawn in 1964. She would end up scoring several more films after that, and around that time her British recording career was on a downswing, until she recorded and released a song called Downtown. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. When you've got worries, all the noise and the hurry seems to help, I know. Downtown, just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalk where the neon signs are pretty. It was released in four languages, was a hit in the UK, France, the Netherlands, Germany, Australia, Italy, Rhodesia, Japan, and India. It hit number one on the US charts in January of 65 and would end up selling three million copies in the States. And if you can't summon the song to your head right now, trust me, you know it. Downtown was her most famous and successful hit, and the song of hers you are most likely to hear today. Uh, writing on that success, though, she rattled off 15 consecutive top 40 hits after that, including I Know a Place, Sign of the Times, oh, yeah. not to be confused with the Prince song. I was about to ask. <laughs> and this is my song, which was actually written by Charles Chaplin for his later period film, The Countess from Hong Kong. Uh, this success, of course, led to more talk and variety show appearances in the UK and in the States. 
She came back to movies in the late 60s in musicals, um, most notably Francis Ford Coppola's Finian's Rainbow with Fred Astaire and Goodbye Mr. Chips with Peter O'Toole, directed by choreographer turned director Herbert Ross, who would go on to direct movies like Funny Lady, Footloose, and Steel Magnolias. Let's see. Uh, she kept touring. She played the Copa, the Coconut Grove, and the Empire Room, which is at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. She did backing vocals on Give Peace a Chance by John Lennon. She was just hanging out with them one day, and they were recording, and she hopped in and did some vocals. All we are During the 70s, she had more hits in both the U.S. and Europe. She cut down working uh, around mid the mid-70s. She cut down on her work, semi-retired, to spend more time with her family. Her last film appearance was in a movie called Never Never Land, which is not a Peter Pan adaptation per se, but has a lot of Peter Pan kind of in its DNA. And I'm desperate to find a copy if anyone has any idea where to find it, because I could not. She returned to the stage in 1981, playing Maria in the West End revival of The Sound of Music. She also did George Bernard Shaw's Candita and uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's adaptation of Sunset Boulevard. In that, she played aging movie star Norma Desmond, and she would play that role more than 2,500 times on stage. So later in life, that became her signature role was Norma Desmond in the musical version of Sunset Boulevard. With one look, I can break your heart. With one look, I play every part. I can make yourself with one look, you'll know all you need to know. That movie legitimately terrified me the first time I saw it. I don't call it a horror movie, but it was... No, it's a, it's, a, it's a film noir, but film noirs are often thrillers, you know. In 1998, she was made commander of the Order of the British Empire. We're seeing a lot of those lately, actually, um, by Queen Elizabeth. Over the course of the, two, of the 2000s, she continued acting, singing, and touring. Uh, in 2013, she released a new album called Lost in You. On it, she did a re-recording of Downtown, and she also did a cover of Crazy by Gnarls Barkley. I remember when, I remember, I remember when I lost my mind. There was something so pleasant about that place Even your emotions have an echo And so much space So much space And when you were out there without care I was out of touch But it wasn't because I didn't know enough No I just knew too much She is 88 today, still working, and has been living primarily in Geneva since 2012. She has two daughters and a son, and as far as I can tell, she and Wolf are still married after nearly 50 years together. But I also found a quote about that they no longer live together, but they're still married, and who the hell knows? It's not really our business anyway, but they were together a very long time. Fun fact, uh, I like this one. In 1968, NBC invited Clark to host her own television special. Makes sense. During that show, while singing a duet with Harry Belafonte, she took hold of his arm. Doesn't sound like much, but it raised all sorts of racist hell. 
angering the show's sponsor, the Chrysler Corporation. The network wanted to use a different take of the song, but um, the, like one where they're standing an appropriately racist distance apart, I guess. But her husband, Claude Wolf, at the time, who was one of the producers, said no way and destroyed all the other takes of the song and delivered them the only version they could, which involves her just very gently taking Harry's arm while they're singing. Uh, the program aired on April 8th, 1968, just four days after the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, the special got critical acclaim and an Emmy nomination. It has been erroneously described as the first instance on American TV of physical contact between a black man and a white woman. But it's not really true. Nancy Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. had shared a kiss on a 1967 special. And Louis Armstrong, when he was a guest on What's My Line, had shaken hands with several of the white female celebrities. And that same year, James T. Kirk, would plant a big one on the lips of Nyota Uhura, uh, which is credited as the first scripted interracial kiss on TV. But yeah, Clark stirred up some controversy uh, with that one and cemented herself into TV history just by taking the arm of the nice man she was singing with. Uh, I skipped a lot of songs and stuff because I don't know what they are or who they are. They're just British pop songs I've never heard of. But uh, make no mistake, Petula Clark is a major recording star, best-selling major recording star, pop star. Do you know Downtown? I, I know which one you're talking about. It's been covered, like it's, I feel like it was featured in a lot of movies in the 90s. It's also a good trailer song. I think it's about New York. And I liked her in this. I liked her. We have our cold open and uh, we're going to start our backstage story immediately. Our backstage story is about a moose. Now, just so you're not confused, that's M-O-O-S-E. There are homonyms involved, and uh, I want to make sure you clear what kind of moose we're talking about, because someone else is going to get confused. Petula points out to Scooter that there's a, mo- that there's a moose in uh, her dressing room, and Scooter has one of the funniest lines of the episode. Yeah, that's a mistake. Well, I should hope so. You're supposed to get the buffalo. Just a good joke. Just a good joke. We do our Muppet Show theme. Gonzo blows his horn and then it flies away from him, which is a cute one. But it's the old puppet again. Maybe there was like a second unit shoot where they had to like go grab a bunch of these one time and they used a couple of the old puppets because like that's an old puppet, Gonzo. I could also see it just being something that they'd filmed ahead of time and then slid in. Like before the season even started almost. Yeah, like just them playing with the concept of Gonzo doing that as their new thing instead of using the gong. Kermit comes out to introduce the first number, and he is interrupted by the moose. This moose talks like John Wayne. First week. What is this, a moose? I was supposed to be a buffalo. Uh, uh, just, Just leave, okay? All right. I'll be backstage reading a moose paper. This moose is played by Jerry Nelson doing a John Wayne impression. In fact, there's even a little, uh, there's even a little true grit pun. The moose paper? Oh, good stuff. This moose, um, get used to the moose. Our ship is leaving Portsmouth Town. Her name's the good ship Nancy Brown. Yo ho, trip the boom, poop the deck, rattle the hatch, beat the sail, pepper the mint, anchors away no more. This reminds me of later uh, era Muppet Show openings where you just come out and Fozzie, Link, Robin, Gonzo, and Scooter, which represent all five of the main Muppet performers, right? Everybody except for Louise, are in a boat, in like a rowboat, and they're singing Sea Chanty. Sorry, it's called Sea Chanty, which is, I guess, it's kind of like a medley of sea shanties, I guess. But this is another A. Burroughs song, so it's, it's a holdover. Telling you, Jim found the record in his mom's closet or something, you know? Hmm. And uh, so this is another A. Burroughs one. And it's just our five main Muppet performers singing a song that's got a bunch of, like, sea puns in it and stuff. For there's 
light from a sailor Sailing on the briny foam With a good stout ship beneath your feet And a good stout wife at home Oh, um, and then, of course, at the end, they sink and, uh, you know, I guess die a horrible death. Uh, I mean, that is the next logical step. Drowning's a pretty rough way to go. Oh, yeah. I, this was fun. It was a nice, yeah, it's a nice Muppet sing-along bit. Hit the deck, follow the fleet, anchors away, scuttle the butt, roll the dice, deal the cards, temper the So then uh, we go backstage and um, the moose who just is just hanging around. It's like, the, I mean, to be fair, though, that remember the cow got in last week hmm. and the moose asks Kermit if he can chill. And the Kermit's like, why not? We get every other kind of animal here. Why not a moose? <laughs> well, I've got true grit. Dog. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, by the way, what, what is your name? Mickey. How about that? Mickey Moose. Mickey Moose, you get out of my backstage. Mickey Moose, dumb name. So then Petula comes out for her first number, and she sings one of the most covered and sung, and uh, you've heard it if you've ever been in an elevator in your life. Pretty sure it was used in the first Austin Powers movie, too. Probably. The girl from Ipanema. Now, she sings it as the boy from Ipanema. I'm going to set aside my disdain for changing the pronouns in songs, but okay. The boy from Ipanema goes walking And when he passes each girl he passes goes oh. it, it all stems from Cheryl Crow doing a cover of Sweet Child of Mine And she changed the pronouns in it And it just doesn't work And I was like, what's the problem with just leaving the songs as it is? Anyway, you know Girl from Ipanema It's a Bossa Nova song been recorded a bunch of different languages um according now online and wikipedia said that it is believed to be the second most recorded pop song in history after yesterday by the beatles but she dances with uh uh, one of the boss man puppets which goes all the way back to god to ed sullivan first time i think they brought out a boss man or i think i think it boss man was created for the nancy sinatra um stage shows in vegas Mm -hmm. so the boss man is basically a 12 foot tall rod puppet that's being operated by one operator in this case who's wearing black uh, to match to blend into the black background my wife predicted that you would use the term nightmare fuel honestly this one not as much there's something we still gotta get to black rooster for that well there's that but also this speaking of later hints and fantasy projects this made me think of the uh, the fireys from labyrinth very similar. Yeah. I was half expecting it to start throwing its head around at some point. One of the downsides of a song being the most covered and played in history is that I don't get any enjoyment out of listening to it anymore. <laughs> she did a fine job. But- she did a fine job. Oh, but I watch him so sadly. How can I tell him I love him? Now we get into our prequel to the Dark Crystal. I was waiting. I was waiting for two things. One, for them to say trial by stone. Trial by stone. And two, for the mm, sound that you typically get from... The Chamberlain? Yeah. Hmm. 
very similar to the to episode 101 to the Juliet Proust episode. There is a Western bar. Uh, remember, it was called uh, Cowboy Time, I think, in that one with, with Fozzie. Mm. It's kind of the exact same setup. I don't know if they pulled the set out of the trash or reconstructed it or whatever, but 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 it's all chickens now, and uh, except for Gonzo, who's the barkeep, and uh, T.R. Rooster's playing the sheriff, and there's a couple of hens around. Then Black Rooster comes in. <laughs> He is what you expect. He is a dark, mean-looking rooster. Comes in smoking a cigarette, which, pretty hardcore. But he walks, and he moves, and he makes noises like a Skeksis from the Dark Crystal. He really does. Everything down to, like, them circling each other. And so he comes in, and he's being a jerk. And, and you know, we ne- what's great is we don't actually know what anybody's saying. It's all in chicken, mm. which is fantastic. It's all in chicken. But eventually, it leads to, like, a Sergio Leone stare-off between um, – well, it should be – what would be the Sergio Leone two-gunfighter stare-off thing does become a trial by stone. It does become these two chickens circling each other and pecking at each other. While they're getting ready to pull their guns. That is so... <laughs> I know we're saying it a lot, but I, we can't stress it enough. This is 100% the dark, the same thing. This is 100% the Skeksis. It's the exact same idea, like in the performance. In this, I do believe it's being performed by Frank. But this is a mean, mean rooster. And uh, they get into a, a shootout. Pretty funny ending. They get into a shootout. The good guy, uh, TR, runs out of bullets. And so uh, Black Rooster showing that he's a villain who has a gun, who has a bullet left, takes very steady aim to kill TR Rooster because, you know, 7.30 p.m. weeknights. He fires, but then TR pulls up a frying pan and uh, the bullet ricochets a bunch. I was thinking the bullet was going to ricochet and kill the Black Rooster. (laughs) They didn't go that far. They just had it uh, knock a uh, lamp onto his head. And then at the end... (laughs) The sheriff and, and the hen ride off together on a cow. Because why the f*** not, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I don't it know. makes sense in context. About as much as anything else does. This was very funny, though. Oh, yeah. This is a great bit. <laughs> it was really good. Like, the Skeksis thing freaked me out. But, like, just the... um. But I but I actually enjoyed that element of it, too, though. The original uh, pitch for the Dark Crystal actually had them speaking in original language, didn't it? Yeah. Um, they recorded some of that. Like, yeah, no, originally, yes, they were supposed to have their own language. But I like that because chickens are mean little things, you know? Oh, yeah, no, they're cannibals. So, like, you know, I like the fact that they're like, you know, uh, I, I would actually argue that a Skeksis is kind of like a chicken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, but this is very fun. Definitely a much better version, much funnier than the uh, Cowboy Time from episode 101. You know, an improvement on that. We're going to see a couple of, uh, in this episode, we're going to see a couple of sets that are being reused. Mm-hmm. Really fun. And I'm sure it will come up again when we talk about the Dark Crystal. But I mean, man, that's a scary looking puppet. It's a real scary looking puppet. So uh, our uh, guest star gets in a little gag in on Kermit. She comes down the stairs and is talking to Kermit, tells him she feels bad for him, feels like he's having a rough time. And I hear you're not too happy tonight. Oh, well, 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 where'd you get that idea? 
Well, I gather you're not really thrilled about the moose, uh, Mickey. Oh, oh the, the moose? Oh, mm -hmm. well, listen, that, that's silly. I, I'm not bothered by that at all. Really? No. Oh, terrific. And then Petula puts on moose ears. Antlers, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But they would be the equivalent of Mickey Mouse ears. And then she goes up to the to the balcony, to the top row of the theater. And you got Fozzie and Scooter and Dr. Teeth and Zoot and a couple, and Rolf and a couple others are wearing these mouse tears. And they start to sing the theme to the Mickey Mouse Club. Hit it, guys. M-I-C-K-E-Y. Will you guys cut that out? Ever watch any of the Mickey Mouse Club growing up? I feel like there was a revival of it in the early 90s. I don't know that I saw the original. So there was, so it started in 55. Um, it, was, it, was the, it was Disney's first continuing series. It was the very first Disney television show. And, uh, you know, it was most famous for, like, it show, like, clips and stuff. It was most famous for the Mouseketeers. Uh, Annette Funicello, who was one of the original Mouseketeers, was my one of my first crushes, along with a lot of other guys. I didn't see those live. That was in the 50s. But when I was a kid, the Disney Channel would play the reruns of it. It also came back in 77, and, uh, and then it came back again in 89. And so that's the one you're talking about. And that's the one that has Justin Timberlake, Britney Spears, and Christina Aguilera as Mouseketeers. Very esteemed class of Mouseketeers. M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E Who's the leader of the club that's made for you and me? They're just playing a prank on Kermit. They're just poking fun at him and Kermit looks to the camera with a very sour expression. He's having a rough night. <laughs> He's, these two episodes are pretty rough on Kermit, but, uh, you know, the thing is Kermit sometimes loves a good pun and sometimes can't stand a good pun. like to take you home to mother. Really, Harold? Yeah, maybe she could teach you how to dance. We getting at the dance with a couple of weird jokes. Is this the first time we've seen a pairing of Janice and Dr. Teeth? Yeah, I was going to say that. That felt weird. That felt weird. He's her boss. That felt weird. <laughs> but there's also a joke because she says it's so good to have. And it's intimate, intimate too, because she's like. Oh, wow. I really like being in your arms. Yeah, me too. And they're making a joke about how Dr. T's arms are so long. There's a appearance by a Merlodop from, uh, remember from, uh, from Dom DeLuise. Mm -hmm. This, according to Muppet Wiki, this is Phyllis the Merlodop. So we'll see if that becomes a character or not. But yeah, it's an after dance. Uh, not very themed this time. Mm -hmm. So then we go to our UK spot where we reuse another set. This is from the Julie Andrews episode, isn't it? Yeah. So that's just last week. <laughs> um, and so the UK spot, term, Kermit takes us to Switzerland for um, a song called Upa D. A silly song is silly song. Upa D, Upa Da. The words are weird, the rhyme is wrong. Upa D, I got. Uh, Upa D is a silly rhyming song by a guy named Aubrey Kennett. Now, I tried to figure out who Aubrey Kennett was. He may be a war hero. But I'm not sure. What I do know is this song was like, at least in, 19, in like 1853, was the college song for the students of Harvard. But it was also, the published lyrics were drawn from the poem Excelsior by Longfellow. 
And I've also found listings of it being a soldier song that was sung by Confederate troops during the Civil War. So it's all very confusing. They are singing this. It's Fozzie and a couple others. They're singing this on the exact same set. Well, on half of the sit Julie Andrews set from when she did her Sound of the Music number. Right? The little, what would you call it? The townhouse? Yeah. Yeah, the little like, because there's the, the half with the hills. They don't show us in this one. This is just the little townhouse thing. Hmm. The song is silly. And um, that's about all you can say for it, I think. To be honest with you, it felt like it felt like it was filling time, which is what a UK spot does. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the ones where I felt like it was just filling time. I didn't find it to be. You fight the idea, you fight the you fight you fight the idea, you fight the idea, you fight the idea, you fight the idea, you fight the idea. Then a very simple number. Petula comes out, and after a little gag with a fish in uh, his piano, which reminds me of a gag with a fish in Twin Peaks 20 years later. They sing a Stevie Wonder song together, Too Shy to Say. You make me smile You make me sing You make me feel good everything And there's not much more to say. They sing the song. It's from Stevie's album, Fulfillingness's First Finale. I don't know that album in particular, but it sounds like a Stevie Wonder album. I think Stevie was pretty young with this one, if I remember correctly. 74, so... 74. I mean, he, no, he was active during the 60s as well, so yeah, he's probably... Yeah, I mean, remember, he started off as little Stevie Wonder. Like, you know, like a 10-year-old piano prodigy, you know. And I can't go on this way Getting stronger every day, and yet being too shy to say, I really love you. And then uh, Kermit's backstage, and he's dealing with Mickey Moose. And you, you got to see this joke coming a mile away, right? Oh, yeah. So then the duck walks in. And he's looking for Mickey Moose. Now, first of all, Mickey Moose is standing right behind Kermit. There's no way you don't see a moose standing behind a frog. Bad staging. Just going to call Peter Harris out on that one. Bad staging. Uh, Perchance, have you seen a Mickey Moose around? Uh, Who wants to know? His name is... um... Ronald. Ronald Duck. His his, his name's Ronald Ronald, 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 Ronald Ronald Duck. Duck. Ronald Duck. And Kermit, who is done with puns, kicks him out. (laughs) Kermit's just like, you know what? Too much. Enough stupid crap happens around here anyway. Too much. And Kermit shoes them out the backstage door. We get our only piggy appearance of our entire episode this week, uh, which makes me sad, in a veterinarian's hospital. Um, Dr. Bob has a uh, patient who's sinking into the table. Hey, nurse, how's this next patient? Oh, not groovy, Dr. Bob. You better hurry, though. He's slipping fast. Oh, maybe he's got slipping sickness. No! He better have money for one thing. At the end of the number, they all get pulled down into the table. Um, almost like a, like, I don't know, kind of horrifically. It's kind of like a quicksand thing, but yeah, it's, it reminds me of, actually, I feel like there were a number of uh, horror movies, like slashers in the 80s, have had terrible things happen at hospitals. Well, it also reminds me of, like, Nightmare on Elm Street, when, like, the beds would, like, swallow the kids and stuff, you know? My favorite, though, is, is like, he, Rolf goes first, then Piggy goes, and then Janice goes in, and she just goes, Whoa! 
<laughs> She's going down. I mean, Piggy acts like she gets yanked in. Mm-hmm. So there's something in there. Maybe it's like Pennywise. Man, there's so much moose in this episode. <laughs> there so, it is. It, it felt a little ham-fisted, but... It felt a little much, yeah. And here we get to uh, a sketch I like to call fun with homonyms. He has a bowl and he's like, oh, it's chocolate in it. And my kids are like, oh, is he going to make frosting? I'm like, and then he comes over. And uh, and I was like, no. And he comes over and he the moose is there and he starts slathering chocolate on the moose because he's making chocolate moose. Now, I think the backstage story is this. Kermit's done with puns, which, by the way, means he's in, a, he's in for a very rough road over the next several seasons. Oh, well, there's that. But also, I think Kermit's still recovering from the previous episode. And so yes. maybe people have stopped teleporting, but he still doesn't have high tolerance or shenanigans. He's very on edge. He needs to stop thinking about being green and maybe smoke a little green. <laughs> Relax a little bit. So Kermit runs in and just cuts. I mean, there's even like a swipe cut, like the there's like a like a wipe to get out of the scene. That's how quick it is. Kermit's just like done out. No more puns. Part of me loves puns. Part of me hates puns. I can't. It's it's a. Uh, I have a complicated relationship with puns. I feel like that's most people's relationship with puns, unless you're the one delivering the puns. I appreciate the artistry of a good one. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate the artistry of a very bad one. It's just the in-between that I don't like. Mm. One of my favorite moments, Scooter comes backstage and he's going to tell Petunia, he's to, I keep wanting to call her Petunia. Her name's not Petunia. Uh, he's telling Petula about the, the final number, her final number. And there's going to be a glass fountain, a huge glass fountain, 15 feet tall. And Oh, it's sensational. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a fountain with real water. Wow. Yeah, and it's 15 feet high. Mm-hmm. And it's made of real glass. Glass? Yeah. And it's going to be amazing. And then off screen, you hear Kermit. It's the prettiest thing. Hey, you will you ever- get that moose out of here? Oh, look out! Crash. Like a moose in a china shop. I'm a misquite. There's been a little bit of trouble. Well, yes, yeah, I know. Well, look, it doesn't matter. Look, we can do without the fountain anyway. Those flowers, that lovely big spray of flowers, that'll be perfect. And she's like, well, at least we have the flowers. He's like, mm. the moose <laughs> ate the flowers. <laughs> so she uh, she pulls a pretty traditional Muppet move where she starts singing backstage a pick me up song that's going to transfer onto backstage, and she picks a pretty good pick me up song. The sun will come out tomorrow. At your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun tomorrow from the musical Annie written by Charles Strauss and Martin Charman it's the um, it's the showstopper from Annie it's uh have you ever seen Annie no but it's I'm aware enough of it through osmosis like hard knock life is th- probably the one that a lot of people know just mostly because of Jay-Z oh. Driving some of the hottest cars New Yorkers ever seen. For dropping some of the hottest verses rappers ever heard. From the dope spot with the smoke block, bringing the murder scene. Tomorrow is the over the rainbow of Annie. Right? It's like the big show stopping, single, huge emotional thing. So you got to hang on till tomorrow. Come what may. 
and she just wails it. Mm-hmm. She just lets it out. I'm trying to figure out if my I, I was watching it wondering if my girls would like Annie. There's a version made in the early 80s, I think, with Albert Finney and Carol Burnett. And, and you know, she ends up, of course, she ends up on stage in a fabulous dress, and all the Muppets are backing her up. You know, it's kind of it's kind of reminiscent of season one, except uh, and now they have risers if they sit in. <laughs> Now they have like school uh, school assembly risers that they're in behind her or something instead of just sitting around and looking at her adoringly. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you. Tomorrow, you're only a day away. See, I was okay with the moose. It was way too much moose, but I was okay with the moose until he comes out and he says, We're getting right just about the end of the show, but before we go, let us have a warm thank you for our very special guest, our ladies and gentlemen, Miss Pajula Clark! Thank you! Thank you. Thank you. I've had a fabulous time, Kermit. Oh, good. Mm, I loved all the acts. I think the Muppets are fabulous, and I... I'm crazy about the moose. Now, that's my kind of woman. My kids were furious. <laughs> they were furious. They're like, that. that's, no, that's what animal says. <laughs> You're goddamn right. Both these episodes, the I guess she has more of a presence than he did. Mm-hmm. I, I would argue the same. She interacted with the backstage story significantly more than Sellers did. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, she had the the bit with Scooter, uh, with Scooter and Kermit before the before the closing number, and the closing number ties into, um, I guess, ties into. I mean, Andy's not a Disney thing, but um, yeah. they, they do get their pop culture references kind of crossed up in this a little bit. But uh, I don't know what Disney song they could have broken into. They could have broken into When You Wish Upon a Star. Mm-hmm. And then that would have continued the Disney theme. I'd say a couple of like, not my favorite episodes of the season, but they weren't bad by any stretch. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. There were things to enjoy about them. I'm always going to enjoy being green. Cigarettes and whiskey was a lot of fun. I said I enjoyed the moose until I didn't. I think you're right. I think they went to that well maybe two, two times more than they should have. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed the off-screen destruction of the fountain. <laughs> Again, you kind of see it coming, but uh, I I like a joke like that. Next time, there's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. So on the next Lunatic Daring, we've got episode 221 with legendary comedian Bob Hope. I mean, there's a chance you don't know who Bob Hope is, like someone out there just based on your age, which I totally get. But like, that's a, he's a pretty famous guy. We've referenced him on the show before, I think. Oh, I'm sure we have. Yeah, I mean, he was an omnipresent comedic force through a majority of the 20th century. And then episode 222 with American pop musician, Teresa Brewer. Again, of which I know very little. <laughs> I've never heard that name before in my life. So that's next week. Uh, until then, you know, check us out, of course, online and social media. Uh, I'm Chad. I'm Nick. Take care. Enjoy your cigarettes, whiskey, and wild, wild women, if that's what you're into. A Feed of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. All right, Frog, we watched the show. Yeah, unlock the doors. 